The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We went through a couple of long books, so maybe for variety's sake we'll go through a short book. And uh, so then I just prayed and I felt like, and then I landed on the book of James, which is where we're going to go through the book of James. And James is kind of a special place in my heart for a couple of reasons. When I was in college in Santa Barbara, when I just became a new Christian, age 19, a year later I was 20, sophomore, and as a new Christian, I mean, I was fired up. And I had resolved in my heart, okay, God, I'm either never going to get married and I'll be celibate the rest of my life serving you, totally content with it. But if you do have me get married, uh, the person that I want to marry, they need to be like a serious Christian because I don't have time to waste. So uh, bring me a, a serious, committed Christian woman if you want me to be married. So that was kind of what I was laying down with God uh, as I was dictating all the terms as a naive, young, new Christian. But anyway, um, and so I did meet my, I had a roommate, neat guy, and he had a friend that he grew up with, and so she'd come visit him at the dorm room, and so I got to know her a little bit. Her name was Debbie, and had some conversations. And I think it was like one time getting to know her over Cheerios in the fellowship, or the uh, cafeteria, where we started talking at a little deeper level, and she was talking about how she grew up as a Christian and had a great church that taught the Bible, and unlike me, I didn't grow up in a Bible-believing church in a Christian home. And she started talking about how influential her high school years were for her, especially her discipler. She had a discipler in high school, an older godly woman who invested in her life and in their small group. They had this discipleship thing at their church, and I didn't even know what that was. Well, what did you do in discipleship? Well, it was an older woman of God, and uh, we'd pray together. She would hold us accountable. We would seek her for counsel and wisdom. Uh, and she was just a wonderful influence. I think her name was Carrie. And Well, what else did you do? And we, we, uh, we studied the book of James, and we memorized James together as a group. And I said, what verse did you memorize? Uh, we memorized James. What, what passage or chapter? We memorized James. The whole book? And she said, yeah, the whole book. And that's when I said, will you marry me? <laughs> but I'll, I'll never forget that. That was one of my first exposures as a new Christian to this concept of memorizing the Word of God and taking it seriously. And it was probably... So we ended up getting married, by the way. Um, and then about 12 years ago, when I was in Texas, discipling younger men and for different things, same thing, we'd pray together, meet together, hold each other accountable. And there was this one younger man in the church, and he wanted to memorize the Word. So we memorized James together. That was about 12 years ago. Um, if you're thinking about something to do with somebody in a small group discipleship context, memorize the Bible together and pray together. There's nothing greater you can do. Nothing that will take you deeper in your relationship with that other person. So uh, with that, James just made an indelible impression in my life. And I, I, think, I think of verses out of James every week of my life that I apply to my life. And we're going to see some of those very practical verses in the book of James as we go through it. I trust you're going to be blessed from studying the book of James together. It's just going to be a delight. So you can go ahead and keep your finger in the book of James. Today we're just going to do an introduction to the book of James. And really, the only thing we're going to talk about is the first word in this passage. If you look at James chapter 1, verse 1, James. Let's just really stop there. And that's what I wanted to do. Uh, James. And I wanted to do an, basically an introduction of the book of James. And today, just three points I want to make by way of introduction regarding James. And that's... I want to talk about James the man and then his message 
and then his model that he leaves for us. So just those three points. James is the man, James' message, and James' model that he leaves for us, practical application. So let's go ahead and uh, look at some of those things. Um, by way of introducing the book of James, I do want to ask you a question. And you've probably been asked this question. You've probably answered this question at some point. And if somebody asked you, who was the most influential Christian leader in the early New Testament church? If you had to pick one individual, who would it be? And historically, the most influential Christian at the beginning and the start of the New Testament church. No doubt the top three answers usually are Peter. That's definitely the position of the Roman Catholic Church. He was the rock, they believe. The church was founded on Peter, the Catholic Church would say. Whereas we would say, no, the church is founded on Christ, or he's the rock. But Peter, definitely influential. Some would say, no, Paul. Paul was the most influential Christian of the early New Testament church. And then others would say, no, I think it's John the Apostle. He wrote more books and more information in the New Testament than anybody else. He lived longer than all the apostles. His influence was beyond parallel. So those three guys. Well, and I would say, well, there's a fourth consideration. And maybe after today you might change your view if you hold to one of those three. Who was the most influential Christian in the early New Testament church? And I would say there's good reason to say that James should be up there as well. James, the author of this epistle that we're going to look at, the book of James. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about as to why that's true. Uh, So let's go ahead and look at uh, the book of James, talk about this man first. Uh, You'd be surprised at how much James is actually mentioned throughout the New Testament. It always seems to be in passing, but wow, there he is, and there he is again, and there he is again for many decades throughout New Testament ministry. And so what I want to do is put a composite picture together to really give us a big picture of James, the man, his ministry, his influence, and have our eyes opened together at this incredible man of God named James. History has called him James the Just. Just so you know, if you perused your New Testament, you'd probably come up with four or five different men named James. So the question is, well, which James are we talking about? Uh, James chapter 1, verse 1 says this, James, a bond servant of God, or really a slave of God, slave, God is his master, God is his Lord, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a, he's a believer. He's a Christian. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Uh, now flip to Jude at the end of your Bible, just before Revelation. Jude is only one chapter. Jude wrote probably 30, 40 years after James wrote his little epistle. And... Here's how Jude introduces himself. Same thing, giving his name first, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. And this interesting phrase, a brother of James. A brother of James. Seventy A.D. when Jude wrote his epistle, James's reputation had been influential for 30, 40 years. Everybody in the church knew who James was, and that's why Jude just had to say the brother of James, the James, the man. So the question is, who's James? Well, first of all, he's the author of this book. He is the brother of Jude, and we're going to find out more biographical information. And and as I go, kind of a Bible study, I do want you to follow along with every passage that I'm reading, because I want you to see it uh, as we go through several passages in the New Testament about who this James is, and tracking the transformation in his life is awesome. 
it is encouraging. It is inspiring. So let's go ahead and look at who this James was. I want to start by, first of all, going to Matthew 1. And I'll try to go in order so that to make it easier. Starting in Matthew chapter 1. So you had Mary and Joseph were betrothed or engaged formally. They were going to get married. And while they were engaged, Mary became pregnant with Jesus. And not through human agency, but the Spirit of God created baby Jesus in the womb of Mary. It was a miracle. It's never been replicated or repeated. It's called the virgin birth. It is supernatural. Jesus was born of Mary without a biological human father whatsoever. This is called the virgin birth. It is miraculous. And it is fitting that the Messiah would be born in a miraculous way. And that's what Matthew 1 is talking about. The birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1.18 says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, real mother, biological mother, had been betrothed to Joseph, not his biological dad. They were formally engaged. Hadn't been married yet. Mary was still a virgin at this point. Before they came together, before they came together physically, before they came together in physical intimacy or sexually is what that means. She's still a virgin. Before Joseph and Mary came together, she was found to be with child. She was pregnant. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. Miracle. The virgin birth. Unbelievable. Verse 19, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, because people were thinking that she committed adultery behind Joseph's back because she was pregnant, and yet she was engaged to Joseph to be married. So people made wrong assumptions that she had been cheating on Joseph, but she wasn't. Joseph wanted to protect her reputation so that she wouldn't be stoned to death or disgraced. So he desired to put her away secretly. He was just going to send her out of town peacefully, quietly, secretly so that she wouldn't be hurt. Before he did that, an angel came to Joseph and told Joseph the true story. She didn't commit adultery. The Spirit of God put that baby inside of her womb. But when, verse 20, he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her, that's Jesus, is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son. And it talks about Jesus the Messiah. And then verse 24 says this. After the angel came to visit him in a dream, it says, Joseph arose from his sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He kept Mary to be his wife. And he took her as his wife. Verse 25 is key. And Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and they called his name Jesus. So she gave birth to Jesus, and after she gave birth to Jesus, Joseph and Mary came together and had sexual intimacy. In other words, the Bible clearly teaches that the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, that is not true, that is not biblical. That was made up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the Bible was written. Mary did not remain a virgin her entire life. As soon as, they got, as, soon as Jesus was born, they came together, and Joseph and Mary had a normal marriage like anybody else, and they actually had several children but between the two of them, which is the next point. Um, Jesus had many siblings. And let's look at that, uh, starting in Mark chapter 6. Those of you who grew up Roman Catholic, I know there are several of you. I did. Grew up Roman Catholic, staunch Roman Catholic family, staunch Roman Catholic neighborhood, 12 years of Roman Catholic school, never read the Bible while I was growing up, did study Catholic tradition and Catholic theology, and I always believed until I was age 19 that Mary was a perpetual virgin and that she never had any children after Jesus was born. That's just what I believed for 19 years. And then somebody introduced me to the New Testament and I started reading Matthew and all the way through, and I was shocked with these statements. 
Like that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Wow, Mary had other sons and daughters. Wow, I've never heard of that. Is that true? Well, that's what this passage says. Look at Matt, uh, Mark chapter 6. This is probably a year or so into Jesus' ministry, starting at verse 1. He went out from there and he came into his hometown where everybody knows him. He'd been doing some ministry down in Jerusalem. Then he goes back up north to Galilee, the area where he was from, Nazareth and surrounding areas. His relatives are there. The people he grew up with was there. People he were, were, who were familiar with him were there. He came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And when you're away from your hometown and then you go back to your hometown, it's not always a glorious thing, is it? Sometimes it's kind of underwhelming or disappointing because everybody's not really that excited to see you or they don't think you've changed or grown. You're still the same. You're the same person you were 15 years ago. That's what happened here. He goes back to his hometown. He did have some disciples, though. Verse 2 says, When the Sabbath had come, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue. This is new. Jesus never taught in the synagogue before age 30. Then all of a sudden he's teaching in the synagogue. And he's a masterful teacher. He's called rabbi. He teaches authoritatively. This is... The Jesus they hadn't seen in Nazareth for 30 years. Who is this guy? I thought he was just the quiet carpenter over in the corner. Fixing broken chairs who never said anything. Who is this guy to speak to us authoritatively from God's Word in the Old Testament? The sacred Scriptures. Who is he? How dare he? Who does he think he is? We know this man. That's what he's facing here. He came to his hometown, verse 2, when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and there were many listeners. They were astonished. They were astonished at his authority, his eloquence, his knowledge. They were astonished at the fact that this was this same quiet Jesus. They, didn't, they thought they knew, but they don't. And they weren't astonished in a good way. They were astonished in a bad way because they didn't respond properly. And they were saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Who does he think he is? We know that's what they're saying because the end of verse 3 says, they took offense at him. They weren't celebrating and glorious. They're seeing miracles. They aren't rejoicing over the miracles. They are offended. Where'd this guy get this supernatural power? Wow. Verse 3. Listen to all the suspicion. Is not this the carpenter? This is just familiar old Jude the carpenter. He's the son of Mary. Everybody knows Mary. She's nobody special. And here's the key that I want to get to, verse 3. Isn't, and he's the brother of James. He's just one of Mary's five boys. He is the brother of James and Joseph and Jude and Simon. It's the Mary brothers. And are not his sisters, however many there were, Aren't they with us and among us and our babysitters and we all know them and their foibles and their sins? They're nothing special. Why, why is he acting like he's special? And they took offense at Jesus. But the main thing in verse 3 is it clearly says in the New Testament that Jesus had brothers. He had a mother named Mary and his brothers. James, Joseph, Jude, Simon. Matthew 13:55 says the exact same thing. Brothers. Well, this is actually uh, somewhat controversial and has been all throughout church history because in about 250 A.D., so two centuries after Jesus left, a guy named Origen came along. And Origen is considered as one of the early fathers, the early great apologists. He wrote a lot of stuff. That's why we know about him. And he actually had lousy theology. He's actually a heretic. He denied the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. He believed that the devil could get saved and all kinds of kooky, crazy stuff. 
And Origen, we know for sure that he's one of the guys that came up with the idea that when it says in Mark 6, verse 3, that Jesus had brothers named James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon, Origen said, well, those aren't actually his literal blood brothers. Because, uh, and he proposed that, well, brothers can mean different things. It doesn't mean literal brother. As a matter of fact, they, they are stepbrothers. And his theory was that Joseph was married previously. Joseph had kids through another woman. And then Joseph brought all of his kids with him and then married Mary. And there is absolutely zero historical evidence for that and zero biblical evidence for that. But that's what he said. And actually that took hold in some sections of the Christian church and was perpetuated and is still perpetuated to this day that when you see that it says that Jesus had brothers named these four men, oh, well, those aren't really his brothers. Those are his stepbrothers. He's not related to them. There isn't a stitch of biblical evidence to support that whatsoever. Then there was another view that came along in 400 A.D. by Jerome, the Latin father and scholar. And he didn't like Origen's answer. And Jerome actually wanted to believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary because he put her on a pedestal. And to preserve her perpetual virginity, he came up with another view about where it says in the New Testament that Jesus had brothers. And he says, well, actually in the Bible, the word brother doesn't always mean literal brother. It can mean cousin or distant relative. But if you search the New Testament in the Greek, adelphos for brother, it, it doesn't mean anything other than just literal brother in this kind of context. So it doesn't mean cousin. When you see the word brother, it doesn't mean cousin. It doesn't mean distant relative. It means brother. That's really what it means, especially when it's associated and tied to the son of Mary, who was the mom of all these people. So this is actually quite a revelation for some people that Jesus had blood siblings. They were half brothers because Joseph was not Jesus's dad, but they were his blood brothers through Mary. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She was just a normal, sinful, believing, godly woman like any other believing, godly woman. Very important to keep that in mind. So anyway, so James, uh, he is probably the second oldest in the family. Jesus was the oldest. And then James is always listed first among his brothers. So probably he was the oldest brother, the oldest sibling of all of them. So you think in five brothers and several sisters, Jesus, Mary, they had a big family. Uh, and James... This James grew up in Joseph and Mary's family, and they were Old Testament Jews. And so James grew up tutored under the Old Testament. He was a, an Old Testament Jew. A, a, he just had Jewish blood all throughout, a committed Jew. And we see that even coming out in his writing in the book of James. We're going to talk about that. So even to this day, the official position of the Roman Catholic Church is Jerome's position uh, that Jesus had no brothers. Mary was always a virgin until the day that she didn't die, by the way. She was assumed bodily into heaven. And that when it says brothers, it means cousins or distant relatives. And I just say, well, that's not true. By the way, here's an interesting prophecy. Look at Psalm. I don't know if you've ever seen this one. Psalm 69. Several scholars, and I think they have a case, Large chunks of Psalm 69 are clearly messianic according to the New Testament because parts of Psalm 69 are quoted by Jesus himself saying this psalm applies to me, the Messiah. It is prophetic. It's a messianic psalm written by David. So one thing that the Spirit of God was doing was speaking through David, making predictions about the coming Messiah a thousand years before Jesus was born. For example, in Psalm 69, verse 9, Jesus quotes that verse out of Psalm 69 about himself. And other verses in this psalm are quoted about Jesus in the New Testament. So it's a messianic prophetic psalm. What's interesting is verse 8 
I believe it does speak of the coming Messiah. Here's an amazing thing. A thousand years before Jesus was born, David said through the Holy Spirit, verse 8, and this is the Messiah speaking. And the Messiah says, I have become estranged from my brothers. This was a prediction that Jesus would have physical blood brothers and during the course of His ministry, His brothers would reject Him outright. And we're going to see from the Gospels that they did. And I became an alien to my mother's sons. Isn't that amazing? Jesus had blood brothers. And they, the prediction from Scripture was they would reject His call to be Messiah, at least for a while. So that takes us to the next point. Uh, so Jesus, you know, 30 years, just one of the older brothers, probably helping take care of Mom, Mary, after Joseph died. And then at age 30, he's called to ministry by God the Father, anointed by the Holy Spirit. And then for the next three and a half years, he goes out, he leaves the home, he leaves Mary, he leaves his brothers, he leaves family, he leaves blood. And now he's committed to spiritual family and spiritual ministry and has a new loyalty and new allegiance to the kingdom of God and his work as Messiah. And at the very beginning, his brothers that he grew up with, that no doubt he used to wrestle with and probably put him in a holy headlock and beat him up every time, there was some love and affection and allegiance on the part of his brothers to their older brother. I have five older brothers. That's how I was growing up. Man, I respected, I, loved, I wanted to be around my older brothers. Even though all they did was beat me up all the time. I don't understand that, but I wanted to be around them. So early on in Jesus' ministry, there is this affiliation that Jesus' older brother or his younger brothers have to him even when he begins his ministry. And that's what I want you to look at in John 2. John 2, it says, he did his first miracle at Cana in his home area of Galilee. He turned water into wine. It was amazing. He never did a miracle growing up for 30 years. This was his first miracle, age 30. Turning water into wine in his own backyard in Cana of Galilee at a wedding. His mom was at the wedding. He interacted with his mom at the wedding when the miracle was done. And his brothers apparently were there because in John 2, verse 11, it says, This beginning of Jesus' miracles he did in Cana of Galilee. He manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. His brothers did not believe in him, but some of his disciples believed in him. Verse 12, And after this, after the miracle, after the wedding, Jesus went down to Capernaum over by the Sea of Galilee, in Galilee, not too far away. Well, who went with him? He, his mother... His brothers, see there it is, there's James. James followed him. So there was an early commitment, an early affiliation, maybe just out of, oh, I wonder what brother Jesus is up to. Wow, he's not a carpenter. He left the carpenter shop. I'm doing all the extra work now. What is he doing? So the brothers were with Jesus along with his disciples and stayed with him for a few days. So this is early on in his ministry. Well, then things change. The brothers at some point decide, mm, we're not hanging around Jesus anymore. This ain't worth it. He's saying some kooky, crazy things. He is calling himself the Messiah. They didn't believe it. So go to stay in the Gospel of John and go to John 7. So here's like a year later in his ministry. He's been out preaching, teaching, doing miracles. Uh, crowds are following him. Uh, there's great uh, celebration and praise wherever he goes, but there's also a growing undercurrent of hostility towards him and criticism and mockery. And his brothers are kind of on the sideline watching this. Like, wow, big brother's creating a tumult here. And they distance themselves from older brother Jesus. And John 7 just clearly exposes where their hearts were halfway into his public ministry. So John 7, starting at verse 1, says this. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. Okay, again, this is his hometown. 
It's where the brothers live. It's where Mary is. All the cousins and uncles. They were familiar with him. He was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles was at hand. So there, this was a major feast. Now, if you're an obedient Jew, you've got to go down to the major feast. And also, his, brother, his brothers are thinking, wow, here's one of the major feasts of Judaism. There are going to be zillions of people, zillions of Jews, pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire coming into Jerusalem to celebrate. And they're thinking, okay, Jesus, you call yourself the Messiah and you want to get recognized, then now is the time. Go down and introduce yourself to everybody down there, Mr. Messiah. So they have this attitude of cynicism and mockery. So look at verse 3. John 7, verse 3 says this. His brothers, you can put James, the guy who wrote the epistle of James. James, his younger brother. Son of Mary and Joseph, along with Jude, Joseph, Simon. His brothers therefore said to Jesus, uh, Depart from here, Jesus, go into Judea, that your disciples may also behold your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret. Why are you hiding yourself, Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, when he himself seeks to be known publicly? If you do these things, show yourself to the world. We know it was sarcastic and cynical, and they were not sincere because verse 5 says, for not even his own brothers were believing in him at that point. They did not believe he was the Messiah. His own blood. Isn't that hard? When your own family members, those who are closest to you in proximity and by way of relation, don't believe in something that is so important and precious to you like your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, how much more difficult it must have been for Jesus himself, having grown up with them. At this point in his ministry, the peak of his ministry, it says his own brothers, including James, did not believe in him. Not only did not believe in him, mocked him. And Jesus rebuked them. Basically saying, you guys don't know what you're talking about. So, Jesus' brothers observed his ministry early on in John 2, but then there was a turn. They began to come, become skeptical and even mock Jesus and his ministry, which brings us to the height of the mockery. Uh, if we go back to, let's look at Mark 3. Actually, we'll go to Mark 6, then back to Mark 3. Because we looked at Mark 6 a little earlier and we focused on verse 3. I want to look, go to the next verse. Uh, Mark 6, we read that verse, uh, verse 3 where it says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. These were all the people in the synagogue. Uh, verse 4, And Jesus said to them, to his critics, in verse 4, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And among his own relatives, and even in his own household. You know what he was saying? I am not honored by anybody that I grew up with. None of my brothers, none of my sisters honor me with the respect that I deserve as the Messiah, as God in the flesh. They don't get it, at least yet. So they didn't honor him. And then they began to mock him. They had unbelieving hearts. They had hardened hearts. They were short-sighted. They didn't understand their own sinfulness to the degree that they did. They didn't understand who Jesus was to the degree that they needed to. So stay in the book of Mark. Look at Mark chapter 3. Jesus is out doing public ministry again. And again, crowds are heaping in on him. Crowds are following him. And his mom and his brothers and his sisters probably think they have special rights and privileges. Hey, this is Jesus. This is my son. Hey, this is Jesus. This is our brother. We slept in the same whatever they slept in. Well, they were wrong. 
because he was now out doing spiritual ministry, called by God. He had new priorities, and it wasn't to the blood family at home anymore. And so in verse uh, chapter uh, 3 of Mark, verse 31, it says, And his mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent a word to him and called him. So he's in there teaching. The crowd is probably so thick they can't get in. They don't have access to him. And so Mary and his brothers sent a message, Hey, tell Jesus we want to talk to him. Verse 32, And a multitude was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Behold, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers, they're outside looking for you. Do you want me to let them in, or should you go out? You should probably go out there. And 33, interesting response by Jesus. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Wow. That, that is just loaded of what Jesus was really saying there. To his mother and his brothers, if they heard that, they would have been insulted and offended. But that, that wasn't his intent. That's not his goal. He's just speaking truth. He's drawing a line. What he's saying to the world is, you need to understand me in a new way. You need to understand me as the, the Messiah of the Old Testament. God, man in the flesh, on a mission to save the world. Our friendship, our allegiance, our relationship as blood siblings has changed. I'm no longer brother Jesus. I am King Jesus that is worthy of the knee that is bowed before me. That's what he's saying. Who are my mother and my brother? Who are my real relatives? Is it by blood or is it something greater and higher at a spiritual level? That's what he's saying. There's a new priority. Jesus is to be looked upon now not as a human being only, as a blood man, but as the Savior, as the Son of Man, as the Son of God, as God in the flesh. And Jesus answers that question, who are my true mother and brothers? Who is my true family? Well, it is those who know me spiritually. Verse 34, and looking about on those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, you are my brother. Anybody here that believes in me as the Messiah, you are my brother. You are my sister. You are immediate family with me. And that's what happens when you become a Christian. You are literally born into the family of God as a child of God and a brother of Jesus himself. Because that's what Hebrews says, that he is our older brother. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, who's the creator of the universe, the judge at the end of the world, can also be your intimate brother. In the deepest kind of way, by virtue of a spiritual relationship with Him, recognizing for Him for who He is, He is the Lord. He is God. He is Savior. Behold, my mother and my brothers, those of you who believe in Me, verse 35, for whoever does the will of God. What is the will of God? The will of God is to believe in the Gospel. The will of God is to believe in Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven, the only Savior. And that's what the will of God is here. Forever who does the will of God, that's believe in me. He is my brother. He is my sister. He is my mother. He is my family. That's the gospel. That is a great truth. So they were shocked when they heard this, but it's a great truth that needed to be taught and heard. Uh, so we know that his brothers didn't honor him while he was on earth before his uh, resurrection. They just thought he was another guy. They actually thought he was kind of going crazy. Boy, our older brother, he's losing it. He's popped a gasket. He's blown a fuse. Wow. His ego's going to his head. We even know that happened to the very last... Go to John 19. Familiar passage. The crucifixion. Isn't it interesting about... It's interesting about who is named and who is there. It's also interesting about who is not named and apparently who is not there at the foot of the cross. You had his mockers there. You had those who had him murdered there, mocking him verbally. Roman soldiers were there. Some of the women who believed in him and cared for him were at the foot of the cross. 
And then in John 19, 27, it says that Mary, his mother, was there. She came to believe in Jesus. Or at least she was committed to him because she loved him as her son. Most of the apostles had abandoned Jesus. They are not there at the foot of the cross. Except one or two. One specifically is mentioned, and that's John 19, verse 26. When Jesus therefore, so Jesus is hanging on the cross for hours. He's about to die. And when therefore Jesus saw his mother at the foot of the cross, Mary, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that was John the Apostle. That was not one of his brothers. John the Apostle was standing there at the foot of the cross with Mary. Jesus said to his mother, Mary, woman, behold, ma'am, ma'am, behold your son. He's saying, Mary, look at John. John, my friend, my committed, loyal, beloved friend of an apostle. John. Mom, he's yours. And then verse 27, then Jesus said to a disciple, John the apostle, Behold, your mother. John, take care of my mom. Isn't that interesting that James, Jesus' brother, wasn't there when their own brother was being executed, murdered, killed, doing nothing wrong. James wasn't there. Joseph wasn't there. Jude wasn't there. Simon wasn't there. Four brothers weren't there. He couldn't delegate the care and responsibility of his own mother to his brothers, which was their rightful biblical duty. So they remained on in their unbelief the entire ministry of Jesus up to his very death. That is sad. That is pathetic. That is the sinfulness and the hard-heartedness of unbelieving humanity, all of us. That is the bad news. So James was a cynical, skeptical, critical, hard-hearted, unbelieving half-brother of Jesus for three and a half years during the entire course of Jesus' public ministry. And had he died in that state, he would have gone to hell forever. That is the bad news, but there's good news. Because God is in the business of saving sinners, isn't He? He came to seek and to save that which is lost. The Holy Spirit of God working on the hearts of sinners to soften them, to woo them to open their eyes, to open their ears to spiritual truth. God is the God of the second chance and the third chance and the tenth chance and on and on. And that is exactly what God does and displays in the life of this hardened James. And it's beautiful. Because look what happens. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. So Jesus dies. He is crucified. He's buried. He rises again three days later. He appears to first uh, Martha and some of the apostles, Peter and eventually the rest of the Ten apostles that are alive. And then he starts appearing only to select key individuals in the early church that would be foundational. And Paul talks about this, 1 Corinthians 15. He gives the gospel in verses 1 through 3. Jesus rose again from the dead according to the scriptures, the end of verse 4. And when Jesus rose from the dead, there's a chronology here of who Jesus started appearing to in his resurrected body. And it changed their life when he did. Peter doubted when Jesus died. When Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to Peter, then Peter believed and was changed and became a new man in the power of the Spirit of God. That's verse 5. So one of the first people Jesus appeared to resurrected, it says that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Then, see this is adverbs of time. This is chronological. First to Peter and then to the rest of the twelve, which would be nine of them. And then doubting Thomas after that. The apostles, the twelve apostles, except for Judas. Verse 6, after that, then he appeared to more than 500 believers, brethren, at one time. And these were probably disciples who had been following him and were committed throughout his ministry. Most of whom remain until now, Paul says. Some have fallen asleep or died and gone to heaven. Verse 7, and then he appeared, get this, and then he appeared to James. There it is. Jesus made a special 
deliberate supernatural appearance to his half-brother James, who had doubted him for three and a half years of his public ministry. That is the blessed heart of a forgiving Savior, isn't it? You're not going to go to James, shake his supernatural resurrected finger at James. You're going to hell. How dare you? It's, he went to, to James in love. Now do you believe me, James? Now do you believe that I'm not just your older brother? I am your Savior. I am the promised Messiah. I am your only way to heaven. I love you. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And James, you are lost. He appeared to James. And then he appeared to others. And I, I believe this is where James got saved. James became born again. Because you can respond of one of only two ways. If the resurrected, glorious, majestic Jesus Christ spontaneously appears to you face to face. It's either belief or you reject. This is where James got saved. Awesome. And in light of Corinthians, Paul tells us when you get saved, you become a new creature, don't you? Old things pass away. Yucky things pass away. All things become new. And those all things are good things. The blessings of God. You are a new person. Transformed. Changed from the inside out. That is awesome. This, is, this happened to James. So this was the nexus. This was the turning point in his spiritual life. So he becomes a believer. Not only does he become a believer, he becomes affiliated with the early New Testament church. Look at Acts chapter... There's a, just a couple of passages I want to look in the book of Acts. So just before Jesus ascends, he calls his disciples to himself. He gives them one last word. He reminds them of the Great Commission and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Whoever that group was, verse 12 says, they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives where they had their meeting with Jesus in Jerusalem. Verse 13, when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. The upper room, this was a designated place where early believers in Jesus met and prayed and waited on the Lord and sought God's wisdom as they waited patiently. It was the upper room where they were staying. Who was there? The apostles in verse 13 are mentioned. Then, look at this in verse 14. Who else was in the upper room at that point, at the time of the ascension? These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women, which we've seen all throughout the Gospels, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, get this, and his brothers. There it is. I bet you James, after that visitation from Jesus, and when he believed, he probably went home and told all of his knucklehead brothers, Joseph, Simon, Jude, it's true, our brother. Actually, our Jesus is the Messiah. He's alive. And they believed. And all of his brothers are right there, waiting as the church is about to begin. It's awesome. So he becomes a part of the initial believing community at the time of Pentecost. Not only that, James begins. so James becomes a believer. He becomes part of the initial community. And God has equipped him and gifted him with supernatural gifts and abilities so that quickly James rises in influence in the first church in Jerusalem. They started with 120 people. And then they had 3,000 people. And then it grew to 5,000 men. And then even beyond that. And the, the church is just exploding. And they need strong, clear, gifted, supernatural leadership. And James rises from the ashes to the very pinnacle of the New Testament church in Jerusalem. It is unbelievable. That's the testimony in the book of Acts. So he's not just a believer. He's not just influential. He's not just Jesus' half-brother. He becomes the most significant leader at the church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. He eclipses Peter, he eclipses John, he eclipses the rest of the apostles in his influence and authority. And I just want to show you a couple of examples where that's true. Uh, go to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, amazing story. It begins by saying that Herod, wicked, vicious Herod, hated the Christians. 
Verse 2 says that Herod killed one of the apostles. James, the son of Zebedee, brother of John, one of the apostles, killed him with the sword, probably chopped his head off. The church is devastated by it. Then he throws Peter in prison. So this full-scale persecution of the church continues after Stephen got murdered in Acts chapter 7 and 8. Peter's in prison. Peter gets released by an angel. Peter is amazed at the miracle that the angel opened all the prison doors so Peter was allowed to escape from prison. So Peter flees and he runs from the prison. Verse 12 says when Peter realized that the angel let him free, that Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So he's fleeing for safety at a home Bible study, at a home of a woman named Mary, and the door is locked. So verse 13 says, Peter knocks on the door of the gate, and a servant girl came and knocked, uh, came to answer the door. Her name was Rhoda. And when she recognized Peter's voice, so he, apparently she couldn't see him, she could only hear his voice, who is it? And they weren't going to open that door for anything. And Peter's saying, it's me, it's Peter. And she heard Peter's voice. And her response was because of her joy. She did not open the gate. She should open the door. Peter's out there scared to death. She is so excited. Oh, it's Peter. She runs back to the Bible study or whatever where all the Christians are gathered and she announces to all of them, Peter's outside and he's locked outside the gate. Isn't that cool? Verse 15, uh, And they said to her, You are out of your mind. In Spanish, You are loco en la cabeza. But she kept insisting, no, it's true, it's true, it's true. And they kept saying, no, it's his angel, little girl. You don't know what you're talking about, verse 16. But Peter continued knocking, hammering away. Let me in. Before the soldiers come, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and they were amazed. Verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, shh. He described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison with an angel. And get this, what Peter, the first thing on Peter's mind of importance. And he said, report these things to James. Because at this point, James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Tell James and the brethren. Tell James and the other apostles. Tell James and the other elders. That, those are the phrases used all throughout the book of Acts. Now go to Acts 15. Again, seeing the rising influence of, the book of James himself, like I said, eclipsing the authority at times of Peter, John, and even Paul himself. And that's an example in Acts 15. Acts 15, verse 1 says this, Some men came down from Judea, began teaching the brothers, believers, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. So they were saying, you've got to believe in Jesus' gospel to be saved, but you also got to get circumcised. Kind of like people who say, you've got to believe in the gospel and get baptized to be saved. Same thing. Paul and Barnabas knew that was wrong. That is undermining the gospel, the purity of the gospel. Interesting phrase in verse 2 of Acts 15. When Paul and Barnabas heard this, that some people were saying, to get saved, you've got to believe in the gospel plus circumcision, faith plus works, Paul became irate. He became unglued. Nice, friendly, shepherd, pastor Paul. Became unglued. Verse 2. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, I cannot... Emphasize enough what those words mean in the original text. Great, not just dissension. Dissension is bad enough. Great dissension. Mega dissension. Paul was raising his voice. Saliva probably spitting out of his mouth. I bet his face turned red. His veins were bulging. He maybe was even shaking his finger. Great dissent. Why? Because he wants to guard and protect the purity of the gospel. God has commissioned him. He's going to put his life. He will die for this gospel. That's what he's doing. Great dissension and debate. And you know what? Elders, pastors, and shepherds need to have this attitude about protecting the purity of the doctrine of the church. They do. 
What's kind of interesting is chapter 15 begins with great dissension on Paul's part and it ends with great dissension on Paul's part in 39. So he's shaking his finger at these guys and then a little later he's shaking his finger at Barnabas over a methodology of ministry and philosophy of ministry. But anyway, so they've got this... And these are professing Christians who have infiltrated the church saying you believe in the gospel plus you get circumcised. If you're a Gentile, then you will be saved. And so this was spreading all over the place, this doctrine. It made Paul furious. And Paul and Barnabas say, okay, that's it. We need to go to Jerusalem. We need to talk to James, Peter, the apostles there, John. We need to get their word. They need to finalize it. They need to disseminate what is truth to protect the purity of the gospel. So let's go to Jerusalem, Barnabas, right now. Let's settle this issue once and for all before the court of the church. Verse 4, and when they had arrived at Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas... Notice who they were received by. They were received by the church. That's all the lay people. They were received by the apostles. That's the formal leadership. And also they were received by the elders. A plurality of elders also led the church in Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas reported all that God had been doing through them, through their ministry, to the Gentiles everywhere they went. But, contrast, verse 5, some people were not impressed with Paul and Barnabas' testimony about Gentiles being saved. But certain ones, certain Christians, certain professing believers from the sect of the Pharisees, So they were poisoned by works righteousness, but they were a part of the church and apparently they were a part of the leadership of the church. They were an influential voice. A great schism. They were a sect of the Pharisees who had believed and they stood up and basically protested and objected to Paul and Barnabas. Verse 6, And the apostles and the elders came together to look into the matter. So now the leaders of the church said, Man, we've got a mess on our hands. We have got to resolve this issue. They had a long, long, long church meeting. And the first person that gets up and speaks by way of leadership is Peter, verse 7, and he just gives a testimony. He, he agrees. God saved Gentiles wherever I went. What Paul is saying is true. And I didn't ask him to get circumcised. And then verse 12, Paul and Barnabas, they give their testimony, saying, well, here's what God did. He did save these Gentiles just with the gospel, not works. So after Peter gives his testimony... And Barnabas and Paul give their testimony, James, the leader of the church... The leader of the apostles, the leader of the elders, stands up. He's got such great established stature, nobody rejects his leadership. Everybody listens. That's verse 13. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. I mean, isn't that? Listen to the authority by which he speaks. It's telling. Listen to me. Peter and Paul just got up and gave a testimony. James is giving up to give a decree. A binding decree. And God spoke through him, verses 14 through 18. And James gave what the decree was. Verse 19. Look at verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment. It is my judgment as the leader of the church, as God is using me. It is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but they simply abide by a few things. Verse 22. After James was done speaking, it said it was good. Get this. To the apostles... See, they didn't say, well, who do you think you are, James? We followed Jesus through thick and thin for three and a half years and you rejected Him and you were related to Him. They didn't do that. They recognized that God raised Him up to be a leader. Then it seemed good to the apostles what James said. It it seemed good to the plurality of the elders what uh, James had said. And it seemed good to the entire church what James had said. And then they actually ended up implementing what James said. And then we can go to Acts 21. I'm not going to go there. But there's another example of James exercising leadership even over the apostles in the church. Amazing. 
how God changed his life around. So that is the man. That was the main meat of what I wanted to share with you is this character that we don't think about enough and haven't studied enough. And I know I didn't hear enough about James and who he was and how God changed his life, which is very encouraging for all of us as sinners. So that's the man. Let's look at the message. Just a few things I want to highlight in what we're going to see in the book of James. We don't need to expound on it because we're going to be confronted with it every week. But just a couple of highlights. It is the earliest New Testament book, probably written around 45 A.D., earliest book. It reflects no knowledge of the existence of Gentile Christians all over the place because he wrote this before Paul had his ministry to the Gentiles. Uh, It is the first of what is called the general or Catholic epistles or the cyclical epistles. So it wasn't written to one person or one local church. It was written to a group of people. A group of people. And James 1 tells us, well, what group of people was it written to? And he says, James, the bondservant of God and of Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, to the 12 tribes. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's his audience. Uh, The book is, it's got a Hebrew flavor to it. There are uh, Hebrew idioms and Hebrew phrases. And uh, actually, it's called the Old Testament book of the New Testament. It's actually called the Proverbs of the New Testament because it's very similar to the book of Proverbs. Uh, It's got proverbial statements all throughout. That's why it's kind of hard to outline. So it's a unique book in many respects. The emphasis isn't on theology, but on doing and obedience. Theology is understood. These people knew the word. Now they were supposed to act on it. And also the audience is apparently a congregation that has been around. They've been believing for a while, probably 10, 15 years, and they've become somewhat lethargic because for a couple of reasons, because they're undergoing some trials from famines, also some persecution, and also, hey, what happened? Jesus said he was going to return quickly, and it's been 15 years. I'm tired of waiting. So they got apathetic, complacent. You know what? Churches do that, don't they? There's another good reason why it's good for GBF to study James. We need a, a shot in the arm to go to the next level, like Pastor Blakey was saying. We, we got a lot of head knowledge. We need to put it into action now, and James is the perfect book for that. Very practical in his exhortations about how we should be living Um, I did want to say that the book of James has been misunderstood by a lot of people all throughout history the early church a couple people had a problem with it because they thought James was contradicting Paul because James says in James chapter 2 you're justified by your works where Paul said you're justified by your faith apart from works they saw that as a contradiction but it's not and we're going to see why it's not Uh, Martin Luther, the influential reformer of the 1500s, he struggled with the book of James. He wrote the entire Bible in his own language in German. And when he got to James, he was very frustrated because he grew up as a, a rigid Roman Catholic, committed to works righteousness, getting saved by works. And then he got saved by reading the book of Romans and Paul's writings that salvation was by grace apart from works. It was through faith. And when he got to James and he read chapter 2 and said, and James makes this weird statement that you're justified not by faith alone, but also faith plus your works, Luther could not handle that. He never got over that. But he misunderstood the context. And as a result, he said that it was a, 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 an epistle made of straw out of 1 Corinthians where Paul said there were wood, straw, and stubble. Some things are good, some things are better, and some things aren't so good. And he was saying... James isn't one of the best epistles. He didn't reject it outright, but he had a hard time with it. Or maybe he called it straw because it was hard to swallow for him. Hard to chew. Wow, I know this is from God, but wow, I don't understand this. So Luther had a hard time. And a lot of people, unfortunately, followed suit with Luther in the Protestant uh, denomination. And even to this day, they think it's an inferior book. That's shameful. 
By the way, Luther wasn't perfect. That's a good reminder. You know those Reformer and Puritan guys? They were not perfect. They walked with feet of clay, right? Scripture says, don't put your trust in any man. You will be disappointed. I guarantee you that if you lived in the day of Luther and Calvin and watched what they did and followed them wherever they went, you would be greatly disappointed. Tremendous, hugely disappointed. And you're in, you'd say, wow, you're just like McManus. Seriously. So Luther, he made a boo-boo. Others have misused the book of James. The Mormon church, they are known for using the book of James when it's convenient for them for their works righteousness doctrine. They love James chapter 2 where it says you're saved or justified by works. The Roman Catholic church uses the book of James for two of their seven sacraments and also to validate their belief in justification by works righteousness plus faith. So it's a book that's been neglected. It's a book that's been abused. It's a book that has been misunderstood. And hopefully by God's grace, the teaching of the Holy Spirit, we will understand it properly so we can apply it to our life. So that is the message of the book of James. Like I said, we're going to look at more. Well, in light of the man, mostly, and also the message, uh, point number three is, well, what's the model that we take away from this introduction to the book of James? And mostly from James's amazing life as God worked in his life supernaturally, just four things I want for us to take away. And that is, point number one is that truth is offensive to sinners. Truth is offensive to sinners. Because that was true of James early on. He was offended by Jesus. He was offended by Jesus' gospel, Jesus' preaching, because he was a sinner. Truth is offensive. And some truth is even more offensive. I mean, it... Some people find the Bible offensive. And then some people find the fact that Genesis 1 says God made everything out of nothing very offensive specifically. But the most offensive truth in the world, without a doubt, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is. Because what does it say? You're a sinner. You're separated from God. You need to be born again. And there's only one way to heaven. And it is only through Jesus Christ. And it is only based on his term. That is offensive to sinners, isn't it? I think I was offended the first time I heard that when I was 17. And I said, no, thank you. So truth is offensive. Truth divides families. We saw that in, in, James's, in Jesus' family, right? He ostracized himself from his family, didn't he? By belief in the gospel, preaching the gospel, Jesus separated himself from his blood family. I, I don't want you to raise your hand, but I, I know there are many of you, if I were to ask you, has your faith in Jesus Christ ostracized you from your immediate blood family? I could raise my hand and many of you could. And that's why when Jesus preached Matthew chapter 10, and he said, I did not come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. And I am going to, I guarantee you that your allegiance to me will separate mother and daughter, father and son, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Jesus knew by experience what that meant. That wasn't theoretical. He was experiencing with his own brothers. So truth is offensive. But that's the bad news, good news. Number two, God changes people, doesn't he? God changes people. He softens hearts out of his grace and his mercy. And he did that for James. And we saw that. He did, he saw, he did that. God changes people. The gospel transformed Hardened, transforms hardened, unbelieving, self-centered sinners. Jesus' family came around. All the brothers. I trust all the sisters. We know mom came around. And all things became new. Don't give up on your unbelieving siblings, family, your mom, your dad that doesn't believe. Keep praying. I was reminded of that this week. Keep praying for my siblings. Keep praying for my dad. 
the softening of their heart, the wooing of Christ, the grace of the gospel. Where sin abounds, grace abounds so much more. God changes people. Number three, the spiritual family in life eventually or ultimately takes precedence over your blood family. Man, we've got to be reminded of that. You'll be faced with choices in life where your faith is put on the line. You make a commitment to do something that a blood member of your family is calling you to do that might be a compromise of your Christian faith, and you have to say no. And you will not be looked upon favorably. They will mock you. It's a reality. It's inevitable. But Jesus modeled that. The spiritual family eventually and ultimately takes precedence over blood family. And if you know Jesus Christ, every person that is a Christian here and around the world is in your spiritual family. Number four, and finally number four, I'm reminded from the book of James that churches go through phases. And with time, churches tend towards complacency, institutionalization, an inward focus, don't we? And getting puffed up with knowledge. That's our danger. That is the tendency. So James is a great reminder and a shot in the arm because that's his point here. There's a call to action. There's a call to practical humility and action in the book of James to these congregations. And I I pray that God has that same message for us, GBF, as we were exhorted last week, to go to the next level in ministry and our daily walk with the Lord Jesus himself. And with that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for uh, our time together. Thank you for the dear people that you brought to us this day. Thank you again for the truth of your word. It it is inexhaustible. When we think we've arrived and we know there's new things we learn all the time as your spirit teaches us. And just a testimony of the fact that your word is living and active. Thank you for the treasure of the truth of your word, revealing your mind to us. And God, we look forward to the book of James. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And as a result of what we study together, you will change our life. You will sanctify us. You will uh, embolden us and motivate us to, to action in a way that pleases you. All for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.